Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hello. How are you doing? So, welcome to my second episode, my second podcast episode. Um, thanks for all the feedback with the first one. That was really lovely. And I'm so excited to finally get it up and out in the world because, um, yeah, it's, it's an exciting, nice project. And I'm glad it's finally out there for you to have a listen, see what you think. Um, so, this week's guest um, is the wonderful Catelyn Moran. We had a lovely, lovely chat um in an actual pod so it's good to do a podcast in a pod she has a beautiful garden pod she has a beautiful garden uh during lockdown she's um she's made her garden even more insect friendly she said so we were surrounded by constant buzzing of little bees and birds flying over while we were sat there in her garden pod um we spoke about lots and lots of stuff catlin and i first met she actually did my first ever interview when i was i think 17 18 something like that um, I remember uh, we got on really well. So I've sort of bumped into her lots of times over the years and it was lovely to talk to her. All things uh, work and parenthood and she is a, a fountain of knowledge and wisdom. In fact, she helped me get through lockdown with an article she wrote for The Times all about homeschooling and it basically said, don't expect to be good at homeschooling if you never set out to homeschool, which I took as... Um, <laughs> good reason just it's not really homeschool at all uh throughout lockdown so thanks for that Catelyn <laughs> uh what do you need to know about for this interview if you've got small people around uh small ears won't like there's one mention of what my kids call the sure word 
there is one mention of the rude word for boobs that starts with a T. And I think we start off the chat talking quite a lot about alcohol. Uh, it just popped up and it is by no means two women endorsing the large consumption of alcohol at all. This is not an advert for booze. It just came up in conversation. <laughs> Pretty sure I'm supposed to do that kind of responsible disclaimer. Anyway, uh, I'm going to stop blabbering now. I'm going to go make myself a cup of tea uh, while we have a listen. And thanks once again for joining me on Spinning Plates. And here's Catman and I talking in the pod. Enjoy. So, uh... First of all, I should probably say where we are, because it's a slightly different sound, and we are literally in a pod. Yes, it's a, pod, is, it's a literal podcast. Yeah, we so <laughs> pleasing. <laughs> wanted to make sure I could find a pod, and you're the first place that had a pod. Um, this is beautiful. We're in your garden, your gorgeous garden that you've been tending throughout lockdown. Yes, this has been the thing that's kept me from going nuts. I felt so sorry for everyone who doesn't have a garden, because when things were stressful in the early days, just coming out here and shifting huge amounts of earth from one side of the garden to the other is the kind of sweaty physical stuff that you need to do when the world seems crazy. Definitely, and actually we had that bizarre constant gorgeous weather which felt really odd actually didn't it just unremitting these beautiful hardly any rain yeah we suddenly we didn't have any work and it was really sunny it was like this isn't britain (laughs) this isn't my life how do i cope with this and how i cope was with the gardening so yeah we're in a garden that i've made insect friendly it's full of things that attract so if if you hear a slight buzzing in the background that's my twenty thousand million bees that have now swarmed on the garden no it's beautiful it's really beautiful and it's funny because with with the weather thing that was happening in lockdown i don't know if you found this as well but all my usual markers throughout the year so i know what's happening and you know all the things that happen whether it be work things or planning your holidays or kids in school or whatever the things everything just sort of went and suddenly just had this sort of endless summer holiday type feel yeah but it wasn't obviously really like summer holidays well all the months disappeared as well like it's all yeah. just been 2020 hasn't it like, i know kind of like there's no it's all just kind of and the weeks are just kind of like everything's like I a know. sort of blob sort of every so often punctuated by either gardeners world or spring watch for me or, yeah. or or the lion king the week that we were watching the lion king that felt like a distinct week but other than that they've all been the same <laughs> <laughs> well, actually lion king became part of our lockdown because we talked our youngest one mickey who's um he's now just come up to 18 months we taught him how to say which is really satisfying on a baby i recommend Yes. <laughs> do they all then pick him up and go, hey, it's meant? It has been known to happen. If you've yeah. got a baby, that's what you have to do, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Anyone dropped him yet, or have they? Oh yeah, of course. He's fifth one down. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> he's he's gets he gets the best, and he gets that sort of carefree attitude to I think with the others I might have been a bit more like oh, don't hold him like that but now I'm just sort of used to the fact that the 11 year old would hoik him under his arm and well you know they're the quite difficult to break I remember with our fifths <laughs> and the others debate like kind of like by that point we've all established that it does take quite a lot to even end up in A&E let alone for them to die so we do uh, stair <laughs> tobogganing where you put a child in a washing basket and push it down the stairs uh, we do a thing called throw you out the window where you just grab a child and go I'm going to throw you out the window and you kind of hurl them towards the window and catch them at the last minute and now I'm a parent, the one that I kind of regret the most in terms of my parents' heart health was we would dress, um, the, we had these life-size baby dolls and we would dress them in the youngest child's clothes. And then we'd wait till our parents were in the front room watching TV and then we'd drop them out the bedroom window so they'd just see what looked like their youngest child in its clothes. Just heard them past the window and land on the ground and we'd scream as it was happening. And <laughs> it took them about... It's, isn't that evil? Now I'm a parent... <laughs> I want to apologise to my parents. That was a wrong. I know now that was a wrong thing to do, but at the time we didn't have a TV and we were just making our own amusement, man. Yeah, that's just so fun. That <laughs> level of shock with your parents is just the best. Oh, they looked so scared. It was hilarious. <laughs> I had a genuinely Did terrifying. you genuinely do that more than once? Oh, oh, frequently. And then 
because that was with the f- so we'd start we'd invented that for the fifth so by the time we had the eighth that was a very regular occurrence by the end they didn't even look up they'd just be like oh baby's falling past the window fine yeah i'd be that doll again yeah probably yeah i hope 90 <laughs> percent chance it is <laughs> um so when i was uh thinking about yesterday and, and meeting you today i found i stumbled across a, a, a youtube clip with you where you're doing a book tour for how to build a girl and um you come out on stage and say oh normally on these book tours someone interviews me but i've just found out backstage that no one's interviewing me so i'm going <laughs> to interview myself so i did occur to me i could probably just sort of tell you roughly what the podcast i've been doing is about and then just i am self-interviewing <laughs> i'm very aware like I, I can provide an enormous amount of content. I'm a very chatty person. I've already had two cups of coffee and I've got my vape on the go. But I'm also aware that I will just talk and talk and talk and not stop. So I, you'll see me every so often go, okay, you have now been talking for seven minutes solidly and you haven't breathed in. Stop, Catelyn. Just take a breath and let Sophie say something. So be aware of that dynamic. If you need to put a hand up and just go, dude. Okay. Please. That'll be the sign. You've delighted me enough. <laughs> this is wonderful, that. <laughs> well, actually, what I liked is um, when you started interviewing yourself, your your second question was, are you good in bed? So. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that? Do we, no, I don't. Was this? I remember there was... Was it in America? There was one in yeah. Philadelphia where I You said I you were quite up. hungover. I was so hungover because mm. I'd been in New York the night before. Yeah, I turned up in Philadelphia. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and they just went. And I was like, so who's the guy who's interviewing me? And they were like, oh, there isn't anyone. So I mm. quickly had to. I think I put a load of questions in a hat and pulled them out. I can't remember. But yeah, I was I was in one of those shuddering hangovers. I've noticed, so I'm 45 now. I've noticed. Here's a, so the, the next book that I've written that's coming out in September is called More Than a Woman, which is the sequel to How to Be a Woman, which is about middle age. I was like, we don't talk about middle age and feminism in middle age and how the sort of whole game changes and one of the things they don't tell you about middle age is that you can't drink anymore like wine becomes your enemy it will destroy you and we literally stop producing the enzymes that we need in our stomach to break down alcohol so what you thought was a hangover in your 20s and 30s in your 40s you realize was but a mere bagatelle these are things that last three days and it's like you're standing at the top of a multi-story car park staring down at this hangover going i'm not going to be able to get down i'm going to be up here at this level of anxiety and pain for the rest of my life so um, i'm 41 when does that sort of well have you noticed it, it yeah, now? Like, how are your hangovers I'm generally one of those people that gets away with it quite well, I think. Um, but I can't, obviously I can. I, I haven't really had many hangovers recently, obviously, because of lockdown, there's not been that much going on. I think the closest we came to it was after one of the kitchen discos and we sort of pushed it a bit more with a couple of cocktails and sat in the garden. But no, really, I don't really get bad hangovers that much. Are you a wise drinker, though? Will you, can you sip on a cocktail for half an hour like a lovely lady and then maybe have a glass of water? No, I feel like I'm quite reckless. Really? <laughs> you beast. Because <laughs> I'm very much like all aboard the booze train. Like as soon as I've had one, I'm like, and now we're on a ship and we go to Valhalla and we mm. will not stop till the morning. And the idea of stopping seems like the death of all fun. So yeah, so yeah, I've had, I've realised you just can't do that when you're in your 40s. I think I've married someone more like that. Um, do you find you drink dark spirits and that kind of thing? Because that's definitely worse, isn't it? I don't really drink that. They, I was, uh, I've, cider is my drink. Oh, there yeah, you go. It's my working class, my my, my days in Volvo, like kind of, it would be cider. That, that's mm. that's an exciting drink. It's like champagne, but for the pavement, pavement champagne. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, cider is is my drink of choice. But yeah, if I have more than one of them now, it's it's hell. So I just yeah, I generally don't bother now. Cider was definitely the first thing I ever got drunk on when I was a teenager. I remember that very well. I remember because I didn't get drunk till I was fifteen. Yes. And a lot of my friends had been drunk loads of times before that and been drinking, and I was always like, I'm not drinking. And I remember having it and then being like, this is amazing. It's why, tasty booze. Yeah, why did I ever not want to do this? 
kiddie boobs. <laughs> well, you came around because you were sort of, we were teenagers at the same time. Yeah. And they invented alcoholic lemonade. I know. How weird is that? Two dogs and hooch and yes, all that. Yes, I know. And it was like, wow, they're really facilitating children drinking. Britpop yeah. is about kids getting drunk and it not being disgusting. That was a very, again, a very reckless move on behalf of the alcohol industry. Really reckless. That's so I you know what a weird thing to to experience at the same time. It's such a sort of standard thing getting your little alco pop. Have um, you found that with boozes that once you've been sick on them you can't drink them again? Because I started off on Southern Comfort and Lemonade, and once you've been sick on it, particularly if you've been sick through your nose, then you can't oh, yeah, go no, back that's to that the end booze. Of that. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. So then you have to move on, and I think that's why when you look in a bar, there are so many different drinks, yeah. and they invent so many. <laughs> have cocktails. you been sick on this? <laughs> Literally that, just kind of like you just like I've done all of that third of the bar. I've been sick mm. on all of those, so now I'm into the middle section of the bar. Show me your rums. <laughs> the then, same with food, though, isn't it? If you have food poisoning from food, you can't eat that again. Still can't eat salt and vinegar crisps. Really? Yeah, that was bad day mm. <laughs> um with with your lockdown has it all been what's going on in your life at the moment aside from your beautiful garden you've been here with your girls throughout the whole thing yeah my husband the girls and the dog always useful to have a dog during some kind of national crisis i find because they just have no idea what's going on yeah they're just like they're just like, everything's great in fact did you see that story about there was a dachshund that they had to take to the vet because it had stopped wagging and they were really worried and then they realized that it had stopped wagging because its tail had broken because it was so happy that everybody was at home all the time that it had been wagging so much its tail broke I didn't even know that was a thing. Me neither. Oh, But that's how happy dogs are with, to be with people. They just yeah. love the guys. No, it's been... I mean, to be fair, I work from home. I'm a writer and I work from home. So my life has been literally exactly the same as it was before. I just yeah. spend all day in my office writing and then I take the dog for a walk for an hour with the pandemic with a mask, before the pandemic without a mask, and that's the only difference, really. And I like a mask. It's I still suffer from adult hormonal acne around my chin. So for me, the mask has been a godsend. I'm just like, great, I don't have to put foundation on. Just <laughs> pop the mask on, make my eyes pop. That's all I need to bother with. As soon as you've got the mascara on, you can... Uh, the, no, it's been a blessing. And how have you, So you've got two teenage daughters. How have they been yes. finding everything? Again, I'm so... I mean, all my friends that have got younger kids, like, and I, I can't even look at you because you have five and they're all so small. Like, mm. kind of, it, I can't even begin to imagine with homeschooling on top of that. Mm. That's brutal. But if you've got two teenagers, like kind of, they've just been off amusing themselves. They've both been at Brit school, the oldest one doing film, the youngest one doing music. So the oldest one's just been making films around the house. She's done one about, um, that she's editing now about um, trying to have your prom during lockdown, which ah, is just such a great idea. Everyone's yeah. on Zoom trying to have a prom because <laughs> otherwise they won't have one. And the youngest one's recorded a single and an album, so they've just kept themselves busy in their rooms. It's been heaven. That's amazing. And I finally taught them how to do housework. Ah, well, yeah. well done. I, I think I would have found that more of a success than if I'd managed to be good at homeschooling, to be honest. I think that would have been, I would have been very happy with that. How's homeschooling been then? Uh, well, actually, you um, really saved me, I think, because uh, you wrote an article really early on in lockdown about homeschooling. And not only did it really help me, but I kept uh, sending it to everybody I knew that was stressing about it. Oh. Because you said so many things that made me feel better. And actually, a lot of it really worked out, by the way. So, well done. Oh, so Hey, I was right. That's good. You were right. Yeah. Because um, you you basically said a lot of the... I started off the homeschooling in earnest. Yes. Box files. Each one, you know, each child had a box file for their work. We had all the laptops set up with all the logins. It was going to be great. We were going to start in the morning, do a little bit, then 15-minute break, then blah, blah, blah. Ooh, so oh. wholesome and scheduling. I yes. know, but also probably I was quite terrified because everything had just suddenly gone, whoomph, you know, you're home now go for it uh good luck um 
and so it's the wheels probably fell off of about maybe day two or three um <laughs> surprised it was that long. yeah, yeah no looking back hour um, one i would have thought with five well yeah because uh my hardy and the kids found it easy to work um be self-motivated to work my eldest is 16 mm-hmm. he didn't he's like he doesn't really like school so he's like great now i don't really have to do it and i go are you doing it? you go yes i don't know and he probably wasn't <laughs> next one down 11 very cross about the whole thing and couldn't really work independently always wanted me to help him work out what was going on where the eight-year-old was just quite freaked out, really. I think he just thought, I don't know really what I'm doing, and all my friends are probably doing it, so I'd rather not do anything because I feel terrible about you know, failing. Uh, and then the four-year-old just wanted to do other stuff, play Play-Doh, do yeah. fun things. And then the baby's just there, like, wanting to be picked up. So I was just like, this is untenable, really. And in your article, um, you spoke about if you're the sort of parent that's ever sort of slagged off school or teachers or anything, how are they going to expect you to suddenly be like, hello, I'm your teacher? Totally. When yeah. you're just sitting there just going, well, the curriculum is just a complete construct. It doesn't actually teach you how to learn, and it's yeah. all just balls. Yeah, that's the, yeah, if you've been one of those rogue parents who's just like, hey, what even is school? Like, yeah. let's, let's just deep that for a minute. Yeah, you're screwed, because they're just yeah. like, well, I don't believe in education. But I wrote that piece because because my parents home educated us mm. and everyone was so scared of home education. I think they thought that it's got to be the box files and the schedules and you've got to do teaching. Yeah. And what we learned from from uh, being home educated is that it's most of when you're going to a formal school, it's just crowd management. Like you can, well, my daughter was really ill a couple of years ago, so she had six months off school and we got her two hours of tutoring a week. That was it for six months. Mm. And when she went back to school, she was ahead of everybody else in her class wow. because so much of it is just crowd management and like kind wow. of like, you know, catering to all the kids in the in the room. The actual amount of learning you need to do in a week is minimal. And then once you get beyond the idea of lessons, like kind of when so when you're home educated, you go through this process. They call it de-schooling, where for the first six months, you won't want to do anything. You're like, mm. I'm free. It's a holiday forever. Hurrah. And you don't want to learn anything. But then around about six months, you just get bored and you want to start learning because kids just want to learn. Like Mm. that's the the young of every creature is just a curiosity machine. They just want to poke things with sticks and learn how things work and ask questions and why is the sky blue and what happens if I go over here and what if I mix this with this? They want to learn things. Mm. And if you just let them get on with it, they will just follow their passions. They'll soon, they won't bother with stuff they don't like. But like, do you need to bother with stuff you don't like? If you hate it when you're eight... It's unlikely to be your job in the future. Yeah. So why spend all this time becoming mediocre at something you loathe and which you won't ever do again after the age of 16 mm. when you could just put all of your time and attention into your passions, which is probably what you will end up doing as a job if things work out well. So yeah, some kids will just teach themselves. You just have to have the confidence to sit back and go... And whenever they come to you and go, I'm bored, just go, well, there's some housework that needs doing. And mm. then they will just scuttle off and just and sort themselves out. So. No, I literally did do all of that. So, yes. yeah, when they went, I'm bored, I'm like, great, well, here's some soapy water and here's a cloth and here are the cupboard doors and they would really need a doing. And one thing you wrote as well is that nothing cures boredom like doing something you're interested in. And it's it's true. So, like, the 11-year-old has now been making loads of movies. Yes. And, and he wants to be a director and he started editing and putting these things. And he's passionate about it and I think it without the lockdown thing I don't think he would have got so into it and pushed it so far I mean you don't want to be too like hmm it was a gift because for a lot of people it's been terrible exactly and, you know, yeah. economically things are going to be awful but for a lot of people it has been like we will probably never again hopefully touch wood in mm. human history have a, a moment where everything is put on pause yeah and everyone is going through the same experience I like know. that's and just all these things that you just realize we'll never have again like we finally walked into the center of london because you couldn't go on public transport so it's forty-one thousand steps into the center of london and back again to see what it was like in lockdown and just to see it that empty yeah like, even if tom cruise shoots the world's most expensive film here you'd never be able to empty out london in that way 
it's extraordinary to see and there were like sparrows nesting on the roof of Gucci and like kind of and, and all the sounds were so different I was trying to go why does London sound different and it was high heels you couldn't hear any heels yeah. like kind of you're so used to especially if you're on New Bond Street or something just hearing the heels yeah all you could hear was bird song and all the people had gone and you realize that a city is two things it's the buildings which in a lockdown you get to appreciate you get to look at them it's such a beautiful thing that people have invented but it's also the people it's like a play it's mm. like a film like they are the actors you're so used to seeing all these dramas and the people who've come down here and the people who need to reinvent themselves in a city and with them gone you just see it as like i don't know ancient caves or something like they've emptied out and a lot of the people who've left the city won't come back but those buildings will be used again like when i came down here in the early 90s it was just after the recession and like the saint pancras hotel had Budbeer growing out the roof of it, and that's where the Spice Girls filmed the video for Wannabe down yeah. the stairs. It was a wreck. And we just thought, it's always going to be like this. You know, back at King's Cross was scary and completely empty, the old gasworks. And now there's a whole new city there. Yeah, yeah. And the St. Pancras Hotel has become a Gigi Hotel. Like, yeah. kind of, we'll empty out, we'll have a recession, and other people will do things with those buildings and we'll rebuild again. So, you know, it's scary, but if you just take the long view on the whole thing and go, everything is cyclical, people come, people go. Yeah. If all the rich people leave London, then it will allow people with less money to come in and reinvent it as something else again yeah no i think you're right it's it's just i suppose there's a similar thing of thought really of just that confidence of just being like just just step back and don't feel you've got to have the urgency of sort of fixing things immediately because it's can't. out of your control so yeah it's like being in the sea in it when you're surfing i learned a lot from surfing like kind of like you can learn to get up on the board that's a technique you can learn that that's a skill you can become strong but f the other 50 percent of surfing is just waiting for the right wave mm -hmm. you've just got to stand there and wait until there's a wave that you can surf there's no point in going i'm just going to get on my board for every wave because most of them won't take you to the shore so you just have to learn you just have to wait for the right moment you can't mm. fight the sea so you just have to sit there and wait for times to change yeah no it's it's such a weird extraordinary time i sort of feel like i'm living through history books in a way just i found myself yes catching up with some friends and writing messages back and forth and my little text messages sounded like some sort of back of a postcard thing, you know. Yes, lockdown was this, but we're slowly emerging into that. And you're like, whoa, it's like some sort of like historical talk. You're already sound really old fashioned. You sounded quite Attenborough there. <laughs> yeah. Slowly we emerge, blinking into the sunlight of post lockdown Britain. Yes. Mm, I wouldn't credit us with that. And I think also when, just to sort of say the other side of the coin with the, the homeschooling and having all the kids at home whilst yes there were some brilliant moments with people kind of having to do things because they were bored and thinking right i'm going to go like my eight-year-old got back into dressing up which is really cute Aww. he hasn't done that for ages and he's been different characters all the time and that's been really good for him but there's also been extraordinary bits of tension and i'll find richard and i can be really calm and then suddenly be like something just set you off because oh God, totally yeah you're all kind of in this like slightly weird I don't know, bubbling anxiety, I guess. Well, that's it's the other thing to hum. remember for homeschooling, like, kind of, like, you, you are also dealing with children who are, you know, to a great or lesser extent, quite traumatised. Yeah. Like, kind of, so, that, so much of it is pastoral care of your children. Like, yeah. kind of, there's no point in trying to sit down and drill them in maths mm. when they haven't seen their friends for months and then when mm. they watch the news, they're talking about thousands of people dying. Like, yeah. kind of, you just got to sit back and go... The, the first aid I need to apply here is my child is upset. Let's just yeah. let's just chill and ride this a bit. And actually, the the thing that happened with your daughter when she was off school for six months and having the tutor, that was actually something that my mum was talking to me about with the beginning bit. She was going, look, you know, if one of your kids had broken their legs or glandular fever or something, you wouldn't be sitting there going, oh, I'm so sorry, you're never going to catch up. That's the end of that then. Yeah. You'd just be going, look, 
bide your time, pass these months, get yourself better, and then you go back to school. But that's the great thing about it, it's allowed us to experience other people's lives. Like, for instance, you know, people who've got disabled kids, like, kind of like that will be happening to them all the time. So, we've all experienced that. They're often taking months out of school, so we've all got to feel that. And the other thing I've really realized, because I'm obsessed with middle age for women at the moment, because I've just written the book, is that most of the stuff that I've written about in the book is how stuff that happens in the house is invisible. We don't tell women's stories. When you're young and out and about and a hot mess and racketing around town, we have all the stories and all the TV shows and all the movies are about that. As soon as you get married and you're at home with kids, the door's shut and it's silent. We don't really have stories that come from the house and domestica and how you keep a marriage together. There are no movies about how you stay married. There are no movies about raising children. There are no movies about giving birth, which is a mad psychedelic experience. Like, mm. this is just crazy to me. And But I realised that... And then the arguments about housework and what you see and the systems that you have and the invisible labour and the second shift and all these things that we talk mm. about in feminism. But during lockdown, everybody lived the life of a middle-aged woman. Everybody was just stuck at home. Everybody was trying to keep their relationships together. Everybody was obsessed with housework and cooking and how you just yeah. sort of do the stuff that bonds society together. So mm. we've all had this experience, which I'm hoping that the next wave of feminism is going to address care work. You know, the people that keep society together, these stories that don't happen, sort of, that we don't hear about because they're behind closed doors. So it's been a brilliant sharing experience. We've all stepped into different lives in the last couple of months, and that's an incredible experience. Yeah, but during that time, it's also quite been, sometimes been quite frighteningly traditional, I think. And um, I think for me, uh, I don't have a place at home where I work, really. All my work has normally been somewhere I go to, and I've kept it out the house, so at home I'm quite available. And I really struggled with not having a space that was my own. And I mean, obviously, as a writer, you've been presumably writing and working Got from home bedroom, yeah. the whole time. And so your kids presume have grown up always knowing that your room is your space yes but what were they like when they were little and you're working well this is i mean virginia Woolf was on this 120 years ago if if anybody listening hasn't read virginia Woolf's a room of one's own i massively recommend it i for years didn't read virginia Woolf because i thought it was going to be very sort of high 19th century stuff it's literally like chatting to a mate hmm. i get the same thing with her that i get with oscar wilde and herman melville who wrote moby dick that they are people stuck in the wrong century yeah. and they feel like they are writing to people in the future going i wish i was in the future where it was okay to be a lesbian and to be gay to talk about these things like I'm, i am stuck in the wrong century yeah and i'm putting these messages in a bolt to you so it's a brilliantly chatty book about what the difference between being a man and a woman and working and she's walking around the colleges in cambridge i think it is and she's looking at the men's colleges where they have fine wines and fabulous dinners and these amazing rooms and then she goes back to the one female college where the food is horrible and the wine is shit and like the rooms are tiny and they don't have the best tutors and and she just wants a room of her own a room of one's mm. own she's like every woman needs a space where she can go and shut the door and think yeah because the main thing and particularly if you have children is you don't have more than 10 minutes to be thinking about one thing before you're interrupted mm. and it's the constant interruptions constant. and there's this whole thing i've wrote about this in the book but like in literature there's this sort of famous thing about when um samuel taylor coleridge was writing um uh uh kubla khan that big epic poem and it's this famous thing that halfway through he was interrupted when a man from porlock knocked at the door and the fever dream was broken and he couldn't write the rest of the poem <laughs> and like we all sort of mourn the fact that this poem should have been incredible but he was interrupted by this man knocking on the door and this is a huge thing in literature and i'm like the reason they make such a deal about it in literature it's the only time a straight white man <laughs> was ever interrupted whilst working mm. like out of every woman will have been interrupted by 50 men from porlock like a day yeah. usually shouting mom <laughs> mom where's my shoes they're yeah. in the coat cupboard I looked look again they're definitely there <laughs> oh yeah they are <laughs> 
Yeah. And then that's it. Your fever dream has broken. So mm. the female mind, I would love to see scans of it. You know, that whole thing about women having to multitask is because we have shattered brains. Like, kind of, you can't think on one track for more than five minutes because you are interrupted. So our brains are shattered and kind of working on 50 things at the same time, yeah. which can be a bonus, you know. Yeah, it can be. Um, In times like this, you notice, like, kind of, you know, I see that my husband just has to do one thing beginning to end. Yes. And he can't be interrupted. Whereas no. I can... You know, and I suspect most women will do this. If I'm cooking the tea, I will be chopping an onion, I will be answering an email, I'll be looking for curtains on the internet, I'll be cancelling a friend on my phone who's going through a divorce, I'll be sewing up a hem, I'll be, like, doing my child's shoelaces up. You're doing literally 20 yeah. things at once. I was going to do a thing about this last week. I was like, if I'm sitting on the toilet, I will be cleaning as I'm sitting on the toilet so while you're sitting there doing a wee you can just like oh there's a J cloth I'll squirt this wipe that while yeah. you're sitting there oh there's an empty toilet roll on the floor put that in the bin go online order some more toilet rolls like kind of you're literally tidying even as you wee yeah. no second is wasted I know well that's why I wanted a you know, podcast is called spinning plates because that's literally how I feel sometimes with all these things just sort of doing all the time and you know I've I have a lot of children and I thought you know <laughs> I thought, oh, brilliant! You know, there'll be more merry and big family. Actually, you'll have these five individuals, and everything they do is really different, and all the things they need out of life, and all the time you spend. And I mean, you you grew up in a massive family, mm. but you've now only got your two kids. Yes, <laughs> but I think I think being part of a massive family is really defining. I think it's like if you're from a big family, you that's part of who you are yes. your whole life. So, are there things you've taken from being in a big family that are part of? How you raise your family, even though you're. I absolutely smaller. thought I would have because I loved being from a big family. Yeah, like, and you're the of, eldest, like yes. me as well. So baby on the hip, quite often. Literally, mm. like kind of from eleven onwards, that was like the babies were mine. As soon as one yeah. was, as soon as one was weaned, I got it, and then my mum would get pregnant again. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I felt that I knew loads about childcare. I was very confident about having kids. I got pregnant at twenty-four, which is I was ten years younger the same than everybody age, else. Yeah, mm. you'd like okay, crack on with this. I know how to do it, and I it fully intended I was going to have five. I was like five, eight. I think is too many. But five, I was like, I think that seems like a reason where. So then I had one child and I was like, might, might, might narrow that down to three. And then I had the second one and I was like, I am done. Because just the physics of it, you've only got two hands. Mm. So when you're crossing a road, you've got one child in one hand, one child in the other. As soon as you've got a third, you're trying to stop it from going into the road with your foot. Yeah. And then the fourth, you have no feet on the ground. You're stopping them with your arms and legs. And then mm. five, what, you're stopping them with your head when they're trying to run out the streets? <laughs> like it's... The physics don't work, man. <laughs> so I loved... I mean, coming from a big family, you do feel like... It's kind of like being famous. So there were like eight of us, and if we went uptown, yeah. we had a big old battered Volkswagen caravanette, and we'd get out of the car, and everyone would stop and stare, like kind of... <gasps> and like you need to sort of call ahead if you're going to go to a cafe, because they need to clear half the room. Like kind of like... <laughs> you, you can't... Yeah, a family um, of ten. You can't anonymously slink through the streets. Like no. you are noticeable. Like yes. people stare at you. And people will say <laughs> things like... But why? <laughs> why are there eight of you? Yeah. And they presumed it was that we were Catholic, but my parents were just hippies and just sort of liked kids. They kind of, they're like babies. Kind of lost interest once they got to about two. <laughs> um, but then that was great because then we'd just go off on our own. And we would do things like as soon as the ba a new baby was born, we, mum would come home and we'd be like, can we have the baby? And she would obviously go, yes, you may have this baby. I've yeah. just pushed it out. It would like a break. So we'd take it up the garden and we'd climb up the tree and then we'd pass the baby up the tree oh. to the top branch and like put it on the top of the tree like a, like the little Christmas fairy. And that was like, we were like, you're in kids gang now. You're one of us. Oh. And there'd just be a little baby at the top of the tree. Again, memories that I look back on now and go, thank God my mother didn't see that. Yeah, she must have had a heart scary attack. and sweet at the yeah. same time. We were careless. I mean, we, yeah. were, we, were, we were baby droppers. That was yeah. our main profession for 10 years, just dropping babies. <laughs> but that kind of slightly scrappy round the edges thing is sort of thing I quite love about Big Family, actually. I like the slight chaos of it and 
um oh you know i was nodding a lot with what you're saying because uh now that we are yeah uh, parents to, to five i get I, I feel like elephants on parade when we go out yes and people are a bit like oh this is going to be interesting if you sit down in a restaurant actually that's one thing about lockdown i loved is not having to worry about taking them out anywhere public yes oh, <laughs> especially when i've got a little noise one is just like you know shouty when they get shouty yeah so Mickey's gone from being like the kind of cute little bubba to now he's like, actually, no, I'm quite assertive and I've got things to say, even though I don't have the words for it. Um, so, yeah, when we go out in a band, if we go on holiday or if we're doing anything, I feel like we're like that music from uh, Jungle. But, yeah. <laughs> and just the door opening. <laughs> and just, <laughs> another one coming out and another one coming exactly. out and another one coming yeah. out. Just and like also the minor all boys and mostly redheads. So, yes. you know, quite conspicuous. Noticeable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. very much. The thing I love the most with the big family, whenever my family come back together, it, it's the cross-talking, like the mm. chaos of it. Like when we wrote the sitcom about our family, it was so hard to write what dialogue was actually like yeah, in a big yeah. family because you gain this amazing ability. You can absolutely be talking to someone, listening to what they're saying, replying to them, but aware of a conversation on the other side of the room, yeah. especially if someone's slagging you off, they think very quietly. <laughs> and you'll be in the middle of the conversation with one sibling, mm. in the middle of a sentence and on the same breath turn and just go, I did not do that! Mum was <laughs> lying! That never happened! Back to the same conversation. <laughs> and you you can actually talk to ten people at the same time. Yeah. So I, I, I think that might be one of the reasons why I just talk so much, because I'm so used to being in a family where this wouldn't it's not an uninterrupted monologue i would be talking this much but everybody else would be talking this much and i would be responding to what they were saying yeah so just with one person i swamp you and overwhelm you because i'm used to fighting against seven other people that's what i'm saying it's, it's like a really defining thing if you're yeah. part of a big family and i think other people from big families will, will understand like okay yeah we're all part of this and i think as well in, in our experience when i had four i felt like a big small family and five tipped me into feeling like a small big family yes if that makes sense very much so isn't it well i guess it comes down to cars doesn't it you can yeah. just about fit four in like kind of like an estate car if you've got those two rows but five it's time for a van like yeah. kind of like that's what the other thing i can diagnose people who come from big families because if you're out eating they will eat very quickly <laughs> because you're so used to someone just leaning across if you pause for a second going you don't want that sausage then spearing yes. it with a fork and eating it in front of you so we had a system whereby as soon as the food was put on the table and once we had five kids we stopped having a table because we needed the dining room for a bedroom so we all just ate on our laps so everyone would come in the front room with their plates and then you would pick your plate up and ostentatiously lick everything on it she's going <laughs> i've licked it so you can't have it and there would be some bold spit people who would like i don't care i'll eat it with spit on anyway but generally that protected your food from 90 percent of the people in the room just lick it or if you didn't have time to lick everything you just do a general spit on it like that's mine now dare you to have it so i can always if i'm if i go out for dinner with someone who's otherwise very sort of contained and posh and they eat really quickly i'm like you come from a big family don't you like, yes yes i do <laughs> have any of your siblings had lots of kids no most of them um no, were sensible. horrified by my mother's my mum had a series of absolutely terrible births she she had oh. that she obviously had that very strong thing of forgetting what each birth was like quite rapidly afterwards because they were all successively more and more awful um so they just watched her coming back from the hospital more and more trashed each time and just went yeah we're not going to have it so my sister's had one my brother's had one and everybody else has gone don't want kids really yes just <laughs> so like they probably thought they'd have billions of grandbabies and actually it's been no no well, the, the family tree is dwindling quite mightily <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the majority of its branches right now <laughs> i'm the breeder everybody else has just gone nah <laughs> it's a waste of time <laughs> yeah well i think that that's quite common as well i've got a friend who's one of eight and all of her and siblings just had two they're like we're not going to go in for that kind of madcap thing have your kids said if they want to have a big family if they, oh, they, they did a bit of review like, uh, my eldest is like no he doesn't want any kids 
<laughs> he loves having the babies around and he likes it, but he finds it all a bit exhausting, I think. He just finds it a bit tiring. Well, it's so counter to your interests when you're 16, mm. like, kind of. I mean, I left home on my 18th birthday because I just really felt that I had had enough of children at that point. I was exactly the same. There's actually a lot we've got in common, like, because I left at 18 as well. I had young siblings and I just... I'm one of six in my family, but not all in the same house. But the eldest by quite a long way. And especially when I started getting into music... Um, I couldn't wait to get up because the home was still very much routine about the little ones' lives and then getting up early. And totally. like, I wanted to lie in and sleep and I wanted to go to gigs and I wanted nobody looking out for when I was home. Well, it was baths for me. I'd come back from a gig and those are the days when everybody smoked indoors. So you'd come mm. back from a gig sort of laminated in nicotine. Mm. Like your clothes would, they'd be stiff and stink and you'd have to put them through the wash twice for them to not smell the yeah. flags because everybody would be smoking. So I'd come back stinking and I'd want to have a bath. But we had a very sort of clanky boiler and if I'd run a bath, they would have woken everyone up and babies would have started crying so I just remember lying there just going I just need to leave home so I can have a bath when I come back from a gig that was my entire ambition it wasn't sex and drugs and rock and roll I just wanted to have a bath <laughs> a room of one's own yes. again basically. again a bath of one's own yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. an old suite of one's own that was, that was the dream yeah being able to go to the toilet when you wanted and not mm. having to join some kind of queuing system mm. and also my family had this thing that you had to read on the toilet we were all big readers so you, like, you had to before you went to the toilet you would have to find your book so there'd just be like kind of someone would be have their hand on the door of the toilet going I've reserved that toilet but they'd be rifling through the bookcase next to the toilet going but I need to find a book I can't I can't poo without a book and you'd be like just just take Robinson Crusoe just hurry up I'm come on I'm on a schedule here and they'd be like no I've read Robinson Crusoe where's Little House on the Prairie and uh, you'd just be standing there for 10 minutes did you just have one loo yes Blimey. I know. One day amongst ten people. Yeah, it was brutal. It was really, really It sounds unpleasant. in a way almost like your childhood was a bit like a long lockdown all the time then, if you're all at home all the time, then that's what you're doing. Well, that was the, yeah, I managed, I got so many columns out of my childhood at the beginning of lockdown, mm. because like homeschooling, like, done that, yeah, <laughs> being locked down. So like, it's, if you're in a very small, it's a three-bedroom council house in Wolverhampton. So we had, in the end, we had one kid had the dining room, one child was under the stairs, next to the gas meter with a towel, with a curtain across the front of it. I've said towel because we used the curtain as a towel, because mm. it was right next to the the kitchen mm. so he'd be lying in bed trying to be private and we'd just go just gonna use your curtain as a towel eddie and wipe our hands on it it was a, just a disease curtain <laughs> and uh but you learn things like the landing can be a fabulous room of its own if you're pushed enough and you don't have enough space you can like go i'm on the, the landing's mine now for 20 minutes i'm going to mm. enjoy this fabulous space on my own lying face down on the floor and crying and looking under the sofa you will find beautiful formations of dust and mouldy fruits that have been there for ages and it's like if you've been locked at home for a long time and not gone out like looking over a beautiful coral reef you can try and find the magic in dust and sort of mouldy fruits <laughs> under the sofa it feels like i've gone on holiday that was fabulous and refreshing thank you <laughs> <laughs> so um when you had your your babies what was going on in your work were you always so determined to keep working. You, did your parents work when you were growing up? No, both they were both disabled. Okay. So my dad's got osteoarthritis. He used to be a fight. He was in a band who were almost famous, and he always thought they would be famous again. So the all of our childhood was him. He had written five songs in 1978, and he would re-record them every two years in whatever the most fashionable genre of the time was. So we had baggy versions, acid house versions, versions that were clearly inspired by Sting, of these same eight songs. Wow. And every two years, he'd send them off to all the record companies in London. And my job, because I'd got a calligraphy pen for Christmas, was to write Island Records, kind of the record, yeah. the, the, the address on the jiffy bag, and send it off. And then six months later he'd get all the rejection notes mm. but we always thought he was going to be famous again that we'd leave this council house and we'd live in a fabulous house by the seaside to the point where i carefully learnt the names of all of bob geldof's children because i absolutely presumed that within a year we would have moved to london and i would be at school with bob geldof's children and they would be my friends like it was that was how <laughs> how absolutely certain everyone's family happen. was that it would happen yeah 
and it never did so by the time I was 13 it was very obvious that that wasn't going to happen so I was like well I will have to make money yeah so that was when I started writing when I was 13 but um, I suppose the writing wasn't necessarily about just making money it was like an escape and a place you could go that was always your space and control like I do yeah. and also the first stuff I wrote was about sort of our family and stuff and like when you everybody's got an opinion about what the family is and everybody's opinion is different you're like well if I write it down then that means I've won yeah, I, that's kind of what storytelling feels like. Kind of my version will be the truthful version. Yeah, and I yeah. will win. So, so yeah, it was a way of sort of finding space and having control and being able to sort of be on your own for a bit. Also, at the point where I started writing a novel, I could say to my mum, "I can't load the dishwasher because I'm writing a novel," mm. and she had to accept that. So that was that that's was another a good big dick of... move there. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you, when you heard your kids was it sort of being columnists? It's before you. So I had two, again. yeah, so I was, yeah, so I'd written the book when I was 16. I'd been a music journalist for a bit at Melody Maker. And then I got a column on the Times when I was 18, which I now know was quite unusual. But at the time, yeah, I'd I, say so. I just faxed them a column and went, hi. And they went, would you like a column? And I said, yes. And it was only like 10 years later when someone was asking me how I got into the industry uh, that I told them this story. And they went, well, that's not usually how it works. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, you're right. That is quite unusual. So... So that was really lucky. Um, and so, yeah, I was a columnist at the Times doing two columns a week. So that was easy to fit in. I had a week off after I had the first kid. And I don't think I had any time off after the second one because I could just breastfeed. Tits are really flexible, particularly if you've got shit tits. If you've got perfect, lovely tits, <laughs> they're not that flexible. So you will have to have the kid in front of you. But if you've got knackered old kind of spaniel ear tits, which I've always had, you can bend them around corners. They're quite hose-like. So I can kind of... Tuck the sure baby. Like. Oh, they, they really are. They're incredibly <laughs> flexible. They're extendable. So you can just tuck the baby under an arm, sort of dog leg the tip back round into its mouth, and then just type over its head with a laptop. Mm. So, um, so that was I gave. You know, if you think your tits are shit, you haven't yet found their purpose. They well, are. Well, I do agree that with breastfeeding, it's like. A an amazing way to be able to do that and multitask on something else. So especially I've done all get, sorts with that as well. Especially if you get those baby Bjorn. I got these from my brother when he got his kid. Those baby Bjorn carriers that are the most minimal and brilliant. You mm. can strap them in facing you and just plug them into a tit. <laughs> so you can go shopping and yeah. the only time it goes wrong is if someone comes over and goes, what a lovely baby. I know, and then they realise you're feeding. Yes. And they get repelled backwards, like <laughs> literally like a force field. Like, <laughs> yeah, Whoa! I know, that happened to me when Mickey was little, not that long ago and it was like, wow, that was really powerful. I know, really. Just on the pavement, they kind of came over like, oh, yeah. <laughs> literally like they're being pulled backwards on wheels like, I withdraw yeah that was private I didn't mean to look um, so yeah it, it, when you're writing those surely you need to be able to have that space but what happens when you've got I mean little little ones wanting you all the time I mean you've written so much about feminism did that kind of go alongside becoming a mum or is that something that was born out from before that or is it like... I became a feminist watching my parents because they were incredibly sexist so there was eight of us five girls and three boys and the legend is that they only had so many children because they just wanted a boy so the first three kids were girls then they had my brother but by that point they'd got three girls and mm. they were like well he will be swamped by these girls so we need to make him a brother <laughs> then they had another two girls and then they finally got a second boy, and then the last one was just oh no, just, just like last last bang on the bang on the drum. Um, so and he was, and there was definitely a distinction between girl jobs and boy jobs. Like girls did the cooking, the cleaning, the looking after the kids, like sort of everything, and the boys just had to empty the bins, which oh. is such an easy job. It, yeah, that is. It's just a dos job. It's not mm. a job. It's just a thing you do. Um, and my fury at the age of eleven, observing this, I was just like, and I didn't know what feminism was I'd never heard of it but I was just like this is boys and girls are being treated differently and mm. that is incorrect we have the same DNA we're in the same house we're in the same century we have the same parents mm. but boys are being treated differently from girls this is incorrect mm. so when I found Jermaine Greer and she explained what feminism was because my dad was sort of 
my dad, when he would mention film, well, basically if my mum ever proffered an opinion or criticised him, he'd go, all right, Jermaine Greer, pipe down. <laughs> so my presumption was that feminism was just my mum being an arse. Uh, and when I found out that it was slightly more complicated and useful than that, oh. I was like, this is useful. Like, this is a good idea. This is good for me. And in terms of writing, even though I had kids, I'm really lucky because if you grow up in a house of chaos, yeah. just having two kids... And just having to think about two things a week to write is a cinch. Like you're just, you just sort of. I think, I think the main mistake that most writers make is that they don't. They sit down to write, but they're also thinking at the same time. Mm. You don't sit down and think. You've already know what you want to write. You've been thinking about it all week. Yeah, it so, percolates, doesn't it? Yes, and when so when you sit down to write, you're literally yeah, just you're transcribing ready. the idea. Yeah, and that's where so many people go wrong. They sit down. They're like, right now, I'm going to write something. Yeah, yeah. What am I going to write? Well, you're never going to write something. It's impossible to think and type at the same time, I think. No. So know what you're going to write and then sit down and write it. Well, I think that's the, the beauty of the, the way your brain works, actually, as well, is that if you care about something, it, it is just sort of formulating all the time. And I've really learned to trust that that process. Like, no, just let it do its thing. And by the time I come to do that scary thing or that important thing, I've probably done more prep than I realised. Well, there's a brilliant study on this. They were talking about... So it's uh, so I learnt about it when you're writing fiction and you're creating characters. And the, in, the, in the sort of brain modelling, they call it goleming. So you could probably imagine, if your mum was here, what she'd say. Mm. Like you can sort of imagine what she'd be saying. You could write dialogue for her if you had to. You've got your mum in your head. And it's the same when you create characters. You create a character until you know what they would say. Mm. And that's actually, it's not a conscious part of your brain that does that. It's your subconscious. You mm. create these, you know, you've got all your friends in your head, the people you know in your head, and you know how they react. And when you create fictional characters, they, after a while, are f free of your conscious thought. They're percolating away in your subconscious. Because you talk to fiction writers all the time and they go, yeah, I had these characters and around about chapter five they started doing all this weird stuff that I didn't know about. <laughs> and that is your subconscious has gone and created them and you're not c conscious of it at all. You can actually create people in your head. That's very exciting. Yeah, because so, this is amazing because then it also ties in very strongly with mental illness. It's sort of schizophrenics and psychotics who hear voices. That's just what their brain's doing, but mm. they've processed it in a different way. And there's yeah. amazing cases of mathematicians in the 18th century who couldn't consciously solve problems, but they would talk to other people they had in their heads who would solve these theorems for them. And like they, they consciously could not do this. It was parts of maths that they didn't know about. Wow. But the subconscious golems that they'd set up in their head had been doing all this work subconsciously and could then present them with the, with the solutions. So your subconscious is incredibly powerful. Yes. And if you just tell your subconscious to do something, as you were saying, like on Thursday, I'm going to have to do this thing that I'm a bit scared about subconscious work on this for the next yeah, few yeah. days by the time you get to thursday your subconscious has gone well, i've thought about it all i know what to do here's what we're doing now yeah so talking to your head's a really important thing have conversations with yourself you are your head is an army yeah and i think as a woman you, you get very used to just telling different parts of your brain okay you're going to work on that we need to have a solution by thursday mm. on saturday we're doing this so work out what the best way is to do that and you get to saturday and your brain's like worked it all out here you go do you, I actually, have, since I was little, I actually do talk to myself as well, which I think that probably is the other person, the colony person. It's so important. <laughs> do you talk to your future self as well? No, no, I don't think I talk to my future. That would probably be quite ha handy. It's so useful. I, I don't know if I have a future self. And this is really important. This is the big advice that I give to all women. Talk to your future self. Oh, because okay. your future, if you start talking to your future self, it starts saying to you, well, I... Like when I, I was the, when I started talking to my future self, I was like, "Where are you? How old are you?" My future self, I'm sixty. I was like, "Where are you?" She was like, "I'm living in Wales. 
I'm really skinny and tough and I'm carrying a sheep around on my back and like kind of and I can identify 60 different kinds of bats and I grow all my own veg I was like okay so now I know that's where I'm heading towards I liked her she got on with me she was very happy there and I was like okay well that's where I'm walking towards then that's what's happening like kind of oh I like that idea very much it's v useful it's really nice you sort of just before you go to bed 10 minutes before you fall asleep just like imagine your future self it's really interesting yeah I'm definitely going to try that I don't think I spend enough time thinking about future things like that at all um well you've got five very big reasons I was gonna to be say, in the present i think when you've got little ones as well it's very uh the pace of life is quite fast and you don't really have a lot of time to um think too much about the here and now let alone the what may be and that's really when your kids are little you have to be very present but like that's the thing again i'm just obsessed with middle age at the point where your kids start becoming independent yeah there's this very common thing of women going well, you know that whole emptiness thing mm. and so many women get into a depression don't know what to do yeah. but if you've been talking to your future self your future self sitting there going the minute the last one leaves this is what we're doing here's the plan yeah, yeah. and you start looking forward to it you don't have this thing of like being kind of shell-shocked and like I'd never planned what I was going to do when the kids left yeah. because you haven't been talking to your future self. But if you're talking to your future self, future self's like, it's ace. <laughs> They've gone. Well, You've got all your spare time. It's amazing. You're kind of getting there a little bit sooner than a lot of people, though, because presumably when you had your first baby, not a lot of your peers were having I babies. was the youngest by 10 years. It yeah. Was, yeah. So you're kind weird. of slightly ahead of the curve if you're already thinking like that because your kids are leaving home but your friends have probably still got kids and yeah like they've all got single. little ones yeah. yeah so it's like so yeah I'm, I've become middle aged earlier than you normally <laughs> would which I'm kind of enjoying it's great it means I get to write the book before everybody else gets there and kind of like give them the advice before they hit it and um, do your girls read your writing and no one wants to read a book where their mum's talking about masturbating like, <laughs> I've had to read my mum's uh, sex scenes in her books it's really how was that there's one phrase that just I can't get away from where it says something like he pegged her like wet washing and I can't the the book's really good uh, don't don't be off by that but it's like it just um, for a daughter to read that yeah, it's different. all other readers can enjoy that sexy scene but Ooh. has it ruined washing for you <laughs> can you peg out washing <laughs> Do you feel aroused when you peg out washing? Do you think about your mum and you're aroused when you peg out washing? How dark does this get? I just decided to stop pegging washing. I don't want, I don't want to confront any of this. Mum, I've bought a tumble dryer. It's nothing personal. I spoke to future me and she doesn't want to look at it either. It has Six-year-old me. I'm still not pegging up washing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Never happened. Pegs are ruined. It's kind yeah. of annoying because obviously I wrote a lot about the difficult teenage years in my books and they're sort of teenage girls were my special yeah. subject for about 10 years. So when the girls started going through problems that I'd written about in books, I'd start giving them advice and then I'd go, well, I've, I've tackled this kind of more eloquently on page 122 of How to Build a Girl. You might want to read that. And they'd be like, no. And I tested them on the fifth book. The dedication is, it says to my two girls, if you read this, come to me and I will tell you the pin number of my credit card and you can buy whatever you want. <laughs> and that was published in 2017 and they've still not come to me. So that's <laughs> absolute proof they're not reading this stuff. <laughs> that's like, brilliant. My little test was like, yeah, they're still not, they're still not come true on that, on that one. And how do you find having teenagers? Because ke- teenagers get quite a bad rap, I think, but... Oh, God, I I just think this... Gen- I mean, there's stuff that our generations had to learn, just stuff about intersectionality, racism, sexism, homophobia, kind of LGBT issues and stuff that, like, if you were brought up as a good liberal, you were mm. like, no, I, I get these things, I'm not a baddie, I'm on your side, like, I want to help with these things. But we've had to learn so much of it. Yeah. Whereas they just have it in their bones. Yeah. Like, kind of I that agree. conversation has been there from day one. So, like, kind of they will be teaching me stuff that I'm like, but I'm a liberal, I don't need to be taught this stuff. And they're like, no, this is how we talk about these things now this is how you need to look at these things mm. which has been really useful and they're just so good and hardworking and anxious and like their lives look so difficult ahead of them like i'm so on their side mm. i don't understand this whole ragging on the younger generation like kind of they're just you know i'm always on the side of teenagers anyway like kind of for women particularly it's interesting because whatever the problems are of teenage girls in any decade it tells you what the problems are that feminism need to address because yeah. if you're transitioning from a generally genderless child to a full-grown adult woman the things that teenage girls find difficult or are scared of tells you what the problems are of being an adult woman now mm. and we don't at the moment make being a full-grown woman look like an appealing job and if you look at the instances of mental health and self-harm and eating disorders and things where girls are trying to remain childlike and not become adult women yeah that tells you there's something very toxic about being an adult woman mm. which you can observe everywhere like there's no woman in the world that hasn't come in for massive backlash and criticism and cancellation at some point however good you are whatever you try to do you, you will have been then regretted by the right for being fat or strident or a bitch yeah. or unsympathetic and by the left for not being progressive enough or making a mistake or mm. kind of you know not sort of addressing everything all the time and so you know there's no I was th- recently I was writing a column and I was trying to think of a woman who everyone loves and agrees is great and has a happy life and is just kind of your goals. I can't think of anyone. There is, there, there's no shorthand for a woman that just, you know, there's no female David Attenborough where you just go, everyone loves him, he's great, you wouldn't criticise David Attenborough, would be sad when he dies. There's mm. no one like that, other than the Queen who I think doesn't count because you just inherit your job. Um, um, that's that tells us there's something wrong about sort of you know these are the works of feminism that i sort of apply myself to because girls being an adult woman is amazing yeah you know, it's hard yeah but it's incredible i wouldn't want to be a boy i wouldn't want to be a man so one of the things we need to do is go how do we make teenage girls not be scared to become women to want to join our ranks to yeah. want to do these things to join the fight to have their joy um so these are the these are the things that i sort of think we need to tackle at the moment because otherwise it just isn't fun to be a teenage girl yeah no i think there's a lot to unpick really because um i mean even the fact that feminism is still a thing is so disappointing right you know that's been the the dialogue since i was a teenager and it's still the same sort of conversation really although you see things progress i was thinking about you yesterday because i knew you were coming today and just thinking about some of the shit that you got when you first got famous i remember i interviewed you at the time and like yeah you're my first actual interview was i Mm. really yeah yeah. how was i was i gentle and kind we had lots of fun uh we (laughs) tried to steal champagne from a bar do you remember that that? sounds about right yeah um (laughs) no i remember having fun it was really fun 
Um, but yeah, it's crazy. And there's actually been a few things that have kind of mirrored because you got introduced to what you do for a living now when you were 16 and started working at Melody Maker. And at 16, I met a Melody Maker journalist who introduced me to the guy I started a band with. Um, so I think we were both kind of have a similar start into the... We were in thing. the same place. And I yeah. remember some of the stuff that was written about you, like kind of, they would go on about the shape of your head. Oh, all the time. Rhombus head. Yeah, they'd said that people at school called me Rhombus Face. I'd never had a nickname at school. It no. wasn't true, but it didn't matter that it wasn't true no. because it had been written... I think, you know, a bloke. And yes. then they thought that was really funny. So that just went on and on. And you were a 16-year-old girl being bullied for the shape of your face. And yeah. like, and, and it was because you were just staggeringly beautiful mm. and they didn't know how to That's cope with it. Very generous, but it's it definitely is, not true. It is true. Like, kind of like, we know the people who were being written about in the music press generally. They were just blokes in anoraks. Oh, like, you were this beautiful, clever, so funny 16-year-old girl. And they were just, it was bullying. Like, kind of, it was really unpleasant. And you wouldn't get that now. Or I don't if you think, did, actually, you're right. I don't think you would. Or if you did, there are so many feminist blogs and so many female writers now, anyway, yeah, call that it out. who would call you, have that called out and they would defend you. And yeah. you would, you've, you've got an army. As a woman, there's still so many things that feminism needs to do. But because feminism, it's not an official thing. I keep explaining this to people who don't sort of maybe get it. Like, feminism isn't an official thing. There's no, no god of feminism. There's no, no books. There's no rules. That's there's carry no a card or anything. It's an idea we all had. <laughs> and yeah. we all chip in. Yeah. And like now, because of social media, which has many bad sides, but the good side is if anything bad happens to a woman, there are millions of women who'll step forward and yeah. go, no, don't do this. Look at what you're doing here. Yeah. Question yourself. I will defend her. But it was the, the, you know, I was just thinking about those times and how difficult it was because the film that I've done, How to Build the Girl That's Out, is about when I was a teenage music journalist and I joined the dark side for a bit. I turned up like, hurrah for music. I'm a fan. Mm. And then I was told that it was gauche to be a fan. Mm. Like, that's not how you should write about music. We're here to destroy people and mm -hmm. to take the piss. It was very much the tone of the time, though, wasn't it? So All writing dark. was like, it's awful, like, really brutal. But it was bullying. <laughs> I look back now, like, bands would be chosen and, like, kind of, depending, if you were one of the bands that was chosen as a lesser band, yeah, you then, could be brutal. Yeah. You could, like, a band like Ned's Atomic Dustbin. You could be as horrible as you want, the levellers. Like, well, I know that, like, with, actually, <laughs> in, the, in the, the thing I saw where you interviewed yourself, yes. you talked about... But probably one of your lower points of writing where you said you did, you pretended you did a sort of eulogy at Ned's Atomic Dustman's funeral. I was the priest throwing <laughs> As the review. Yeah, as the review, the review of the album. I mean, it's really funny. I didn't even listen to the I'm album. I'm not in Ned's Atomic Dustman. In those days, you didn't even have to listen to the record no. to review it. So I just, it was just like, you just write 800 words in Ned's Atomic Dustman. I pretended I was the priest at their funeral. I was throwing earth onto their dead faces, just going, well, what a wasted your life was. Mm. Why did you even bother? <laughs> Sorry. I know. It's so familiar, though, as a tone, because at that time as well, there was so there was, the music press were really, really cruel. It, they were the people that were supposed to be the fans picking you up, but that was the place where it was like, coming at you with knives. Totally. And then for looking outwards for being a young woman, it was the time of things like the girly show and all the lads mags and all this kind of thing, where to be empowered, it was supposed to be showing your boobs for blokes and being totally cool with it. And if you're going to be equal to boys, it was being equal to the sort of lad side of boys, yes. drinking loads of pints. Well, you became a ladette. A ladette, which is, yeah. in terms of language, is incredibly interesting. So if you were a girl that wanted to drink and have sex and go and have fun and tell jokes, there was no word for a girl who was like that. They had mm. to take a boy word yeah. and call you ladette. Like, those were not seen as female attributes. No. You were becoming male to do exactly. that. And just the restriction of that when you're a teenager. And also, I remember 
very much the sort of persona that I constructed was I was a swashbuckling dame. I was mm. a broad. Because if I'd gone in there as the innocent 16-year-old in pigtails that I was, I would have got crushed. And I knew that on some subconscious mm. level. But you know if you present as like, I was a virgin when I started at Melody Maker, but I turned up as this kind of sexually knowing kind of like dame. But that was the, really the mood at the time as well. I mean, I would do exactly the same thing at 16. of just like, I was reading more magazine and I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be heading. You know, yes. I'm supposed to know about all these positions and be extraordinary at all that stuff because that means I'll be respected or whatever or school points or whatever it was supposed almost to be. like a chat I can remember watching Twin Peaks and the scene where oh, Sherilyn Finn ties a cherry stalk and a knot with her and I was like that's all I'll have to know how to do that it's I will it's actually quite easy have you it's had a go it's so easy I've got yeah. a piece of piss yeah. but like but she's auditioning <laughs> to be first okay let's break this scene down first of all she's auditioning to be a prostitute yes. at the local brothel mm. The fact that this astonishingly beautiful teenage yeah, girl would have to audition, I don't think there's like how no, no. you don't need a rigorous You're testing in. process here. She will get custom. <laughs> yeah. It's it's fine. Sherilyn <laughs> Fenn isn't on some kind of like refusals list. No. She's not on the subs bench. And secondly, every girl I know thought that's a thing I'll have to learn. Yeah. At some point someone will want me to tie a cherry stalk in a knot with my tongue and my career and my future life, maybe my marriage will, will depend on this. Mm. It's and like, you know, the lists of all the blowjob techniques that you have to learn and all mm. this kind of stuff and you will have to have anal sex and all this kind of stuff yeah. and you're just like this seems like a very big to-do list how about just a snuggle like, yeah like kind of but i think i was doing exactly the same thing of trying to build that armor and i was really quite brittle about things and very black and white and i i love that and that's rubbish and if you like that band you're an idiot and i, I remember i had to grow out of so much stuff and so many ways of being when people say now oh i met you when you were 18 I, I i'm waiting for them to say and you were horrible yes totally. <laughs> so i feel like i must have been pretty horrible but what you have to do and it's a really common thing like so the whole notion of cool mm. is you know leather jacket shades cigarette monosyllabic like yeah no mm. like kind of it's cynicism like, yeah i've seen it all i've yeah. seen the world you can't shock me and that is something you do when you're very innocent and inexperienced yeah. and you put on the armor of cynicism to make yourself seem worldly and for a certain amount of time that will be useful to you because it does protect you to a certain extent yeah. like you know i've seen everything you can't impress me leave me alone but there comes a point very quickly where the armor just becomes like a cage you are trapped in it you can't grow in it and you can't dance in it you can't be joyful you can't no. you can't have the balls to just go i like this no i'm a fan i had to keep it secret for three years that i loved crowded house more than any other band when i was at melody maker and that was finally how i met my husband because we we were both on tube one night and he went can i tell you a big secret and in the 90s if a man was going to tell you a secret it could get quite dark and i was like yeah all right go on he went i really like crowded house and i went i do too Aww. and he was like should we go home and watch the live dvd I was like, yeah <laughs> and now we're married but that was like those were the big secrets that you kept yeah. that you loved beautiful things mm. that you were a fan that you were an enthusiast but it's such a relief isn't it when you let go of all that and you realize that being cool is so overrated and oh. not even a real thing actually oh, it's, a, it's a very thin cheap unpleasant experience yeah. being cool like it doesn't yeah. lead to anything like no. kind of you don't meet friends being cool you know you don't have the best nights out of your life being cool the, no. all the best nights of your life are where you're just a joyful idiot just kind so of true. just talking and dancing and singing and falling over and going let's steal a boat yeah yeah no it's so true it's it's such an important important change that happens and you're so relieved when you're out the other side of it actually and then i think when you have teenagers you just have to it's not the same but you have to let them do all the same sort of arc in their own way mm. Because it's, it's still part of what growing up is all about. Well, you really need to have grown out of being cool by the time you get teenagers. Because I thought, <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a 
clever can-do lady i understand a lot about psychology and stuff so when my kids are teenagers and they have problems i'm gonna be i'm gonna be i'm gonna be a cool not a cool mum, but a cool mum. i'm gonna get this shit i'm gonna help them out we're gonna mm. have these great talks that is not what your teenagers want <laughs> they want you to be just a lovely idiot you just need to be a fluffy like a lovely dairy cow called daisy <laughs> and you just need to moo at them like if they come to you with a problem and you're like we'll do this and do that no 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 they'll get angry with you they'll be just like you just think i'm stupid you're always telling me what to do you rule my life and you're like but you came to me with a problem and i gave you a solution surely that was what was happening here and they're too young to understand it they're just like i hate you and they slam the door <laughs> whereas when they come to you with a problem and you turn all of your brain off and going oh that sounds shit oh i see you really upset what are you going to do, Bab? Then they start coming up with solutions. Mm. But you have to just pretend to be stupid. Like, when they come up with a solution, you're like, that's so clever, I never thought of that. Moo. <laughs> and just trundle off again. And they're like, oh, mum's such a lovable idiot. And you're like, I'm not. I'm so clever, I pretended to be stupid. <laughs> I wonder if that rolls easier when with women anyway, because we're not as bothered about, I don't know the shift of being from a, a sort of younger man to a dad man i think for us it's maybe you're not shrugging as much yourself off if you say i'm not cool yes no totally yeah i mean it's hard to, i mean once you push the baby out you can't really ever pretend you're cool again <laughs> it's not a cool experience like, no. kind of, you're just i was mooing through that as well they told me to be quiet i was doing really? my moves yeah they were I like you're allowed to be noisy they were like you're putting apparently my moo was was very penetrating <laughs> they were, mm. i was putting off other women in, in other walks from my mooing and they were like shh so, uh, did you find it hard when you were sort of you know raising a family to how how your you know desires feminist to sort of weave those things together because there's a lot of very traditional expectations even now i think yes. on the roles was, that are at home i'm enormously lucky in that my husband was the first proper feminist that i met mm. like he wrote a piece about remember in the 90s back to the 90s but remember in the 90s like everybody had brazilians it was like it was that sort of that was the sort of first yeah, yeah. boom of online porn so everybody had to be waxed mm. and he wrote a piece for time out he has a columnist there and uh, about just sort of like why like kind of let's just talk about how great pubic hair can be like kind of save yourself some money pop it up and uh and it was hugely controversial at the time yeah like kind of no one was talking about that it was all just lads 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 lads, lads. and uh and that was the first time i thought oh my god this is interesting like talking about why we think women should be a certain way and questioning mm. it is really really useful look at the fuss that it's caused i like this yeah so i'm very lucky that i've got a feminist who's just as interested in cooking and cleaning and kind of running a tight household he's got all these little systems we argue about how to best load the dishwasher but that's universal that's in every normal. family that's normal. Yeah. yeah so there's no point in putting a pan in a dishwasher because in the space a pan takes up in a dishwasher you could put 10 plates mm. pan takes one second to wash just wash the pan and put 10 plates in there that's saving you time mm. That's a battle that's raged for 20 years. That's like, that's, he's not receding on that. Well, he's weirdly, I go from both sides of it. Sometimes I'm the one who washes up the pan, and other times I'd rather put the, you know, the pan in the dishwasher and just be lazy. What, if it's a crusty pan? What kind of pan are we talking? Uh, if it's really quite, I quite like the fact that the dishwasher will make it all the crustiness soften, and then I can clean it easily. Yes, now that is true. <laughs> I saw you. I, I saw use it as a sort of deep soak type thing. Yes. Mm. And it is satisfying to just, I mean, it is like a cupboard that you put all your problems in and yeah. you walk away from it. Like, there is something very beautiful about it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, there does, I think, if the government are ever going to do anything, they do need to, if they put out official guidelines for loading a dishwasher, yeah, it'd be helpful. It would be down to every family to disagree with them, but at least you'd have a base point where you go, well, this is what science has said. I yeah. need science to say this. <laughs> British science needs to lead the way and actually tell you how you should load a dishwasher. <laughs> um, do you think you would be a different kind of household if you were raising boys? I think about this a lot. I yeah. Think, yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think about it too, obviously, I've only got one gender as well. 
Well, I observed that when the kids were younger, all the mums with girls had an easier time because girls would just go off and play on their own with their dollies and mm. they'll just play together. Whereas boys have to be taken out. You have to do things with them. Yeah, it's like so, having dogs or something. So I also observed that all the mums that had uh, girls would... Gen the mums the, the mums that had boys would be thinner than the mums with girls because they just have to be out playing football with them. They would The mums with boys had jeans and they would go and play football with them even if they hated it the mums with girls could wear a dress put on a stone and just watch them playing games and I was like I'm glad I have girls <laughs> but when you get to teenage years I think that's where you have to do the spade work with girls because it's so complicated being a girl boys are like dogs girls are like cats so boys just come home and they're like ah, just played football with my friends and blah, blah, blah. girls will come back again Stacy said this and then Honey said that and Kitty's having a party she hasn't invited me but her other friends invited me and then I heard like kind of Polly mm. slagging off someone else and then there's this whole thing here and then Blossom sent me a DM but I don't know what it means and it's this spider's web mm. of girl intrigue and hurt mm. and status and secrets and sort of working out who you are that is a full-time job for the it's first couple of years complicated. it's really hard because to work out how to be a girl and this is why most of my books are called how to be a woman or how to build a girl it's such an act of construction to yeah. be a woman in a way that boys i think it is a lesser act um so those years are intense a friend of mine quit her job at the times when her kids hit the teenage years and my kids are still really young and i was like why are you quitting and she was like well that's where it gets hard with the teenage years and i was like don't tell me that i'm in potty training i thought the teenage years were easy they can make their own breakfast surely <laughs> that's where it gets good and she's like no that's where you have to be there i agree actually. they come home and if they can't tell you then why they're upset, they will just bury it for two weeks and yeah. it becomes a problem. You've just got to be there all the time with teenagers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they think they don't want you, but they need you a They lot. really do, yeah. And it's like, for my teenager, like bringing him down from his room and spending time with him and just making it so that he... I sort of have to keep checking in on him, really. Because if he left it to his end, he'd just be in his room all the time and I would... I could probably not really see him except to like put some food around the doors and yeah, <laughs> slice of ham under the door. Exactly. <laughs> With eat this written on it in the sharpie. Yeah. 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 No, you have to be right. And also the thing that you have to learn is saying like, what are you thinking? That will make a teenager angry often because they often don't know what they're thinking. No, no, I They know. just feel something. Yeah. And to talk about emotions, you can't often have a head-on conversation. You need to be off doing something together. Exactly. You need to go for a drive. You need to be doing some gardening together or cooking together. And then they can just, while they're busy with something else, they can talk about how they feel. But asking them what they think, it often ends really badly because they yeah. don't know and they get angry and they're really aware. I think it's so unfair that as a teenager, you know that your parents are older than you and know more stuff than you because you are you know that they're constantly looking at you and kind of pitting you a bit and sort of mm. going, yeah, I remember being young and confused like you, like kind of, it's yeah. the imbalance is really unfair. It's, yeah. it's very difficult to negotiate. So you need to be doing something where you feel equal. Yes. You need to be doing a thing together so that yeah. they feel equal and they can talk about their feelings. And I think you're right about not always feeling you need to solve every problem. Sometimes things just need to be aired and talked about and let them say what, how they feel and just sort of going acknowledging that that's hard rather than actually going well what can we do and how can we solve that and let's book you into this and do that and the biggest mistake i made in my in my teenage parenting of teenagers was i come from a family where if you have a problem you either solve it straight away or you just ignore the feelings and you just make a joke and you sing that you mm. just you jolly yourself out of your mood you just mm. don't have moods because there was no room to have moods with that amount of children in the house and I kept trying to jolly my kids out of their moods and that became really destructive you just I was scared of them being sad I didn't want them to be sad mm. I was like I will make a joke we will do something we'll go somewhere I'll buy you a thing don't be sad and that's the signal to a child is well my sadness is scary like kind of I can't talk about it. my sadness needs to be a secret and mm. that's where it can go really really wrong so it took me a while to learn to not be scared of sadness which I was I to sit and go you're sad I'm not scared of it sit here 
tell me how you feel you can mm. cry you can be angry you can be angry with me it's fine i'm not scared i'm just here but that that was a difficult year learning that that was sort of that was something i hadn't read anywhere so put all that in the new book as well don't be scared of sadness <laughs> yeah <laughs> sit with your kids when they're sad and go it's fine but then also the way that things are talked about keeps changing because now the, the sort of advice for parents about those things is to say the, there's nothing wrong with the feeling acknowledge the feeling it's the behavior you can change but the feelings right but i don't think that was always no you know things keep changing don't they about was there any psychology when we were growing up like it oh was... no i don't think so no, i don't feel like there was when we were around tonight when we were little no, no. and I, I i mean i think there's also i don't know if you do this as well but when i learn something new about about raising the kids i'll think oh no i've been getting it wrong all this time and why didn't i try that and it's like a constantly evolving oh, God, reactive totally. thing well by the time they're raising their kids i'm sure our understanding of psychology will be so much greater than it is now yeah, I mean, yeah. that's just the way that human beings work yeah there's so many things that we still don't understand and that they mm. will they will understand and we'll, we will seem like primitive people yeah, yeah. Um, i know and, and i'm quite looking forward to just being able to sort of finally hand it over to a younger generation and go yep you are totally wiser than me you crack <laughs> on i'm gonna sit here and knit and cackle <laughs> looking forward to my hag years where i just sit there knitting so by chickens going <laughs> yeah, with the sheep on your back and with the sheep on my back yeah, and yeah. my chickens around me yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah the thing i want to ask you is how how do you think you encourage feminist boys because obviously in my house i'm the only example of a woman they have yes and sometimes i my reaction normally is to be to be really very very capable i mm. think well if they see that i'm very strong and very capable that's surely that's a great example of a woman in their life but then i think but actually, maybe that just will make them think that when I'm I'm always the one that can solve everything, and yes. they can just sort of loll about and not tidy up the mess or well, do any more than taking the bins out. So I've written. So when I wrote How to Be a Woman and then became Britain's fourth most famous feminist in North London for 2011 only, uh, whenever I would do live shows, the third question I would get asked in any Q and A was, "But what about men? What about mm. boys?" And I'd be like. I'm all about women. I am team tits. I have just spent <laughs> 10 years thinking about this. Like, I just... I, like, what yeah. about men? It They'll would be figure the, it out. <laughs> it'd be the ultimate irony of feminism, would it not? If having sorted out women, women then had to sort out men. Like, they yeah, would yeah, just yeah. have to sort this out themselves. But the more I've thought about it, like, the, the, the core definition of feminism is believing in the social, personal, political, and economic equality of the sexes. Yeah. And once you... And obviously my first thing was like, okay, how are women unequal within this? But there are ways that men are unequal in gender as well. Mm. So because that's the patriarchy, it's like about gender roles. Yeah. So and, and feminism has tackled the inequalities of women. So I went on Twitter two years ago and just went, lovely men of Twitter. Like kind of, we're always talking about the problems that women have. What about the problems that men have? And I thought it'd be like a couple of hours and be sort of fairly interesting. It went on for a week. Wow. I got tens of thousands of replies it became a news story in newspapers across the world because what was uncovered was that the gender inequalities that are particularly for the younger generation so you, so you hear men saying things like feminism's gone too far it's easier to be a young woman than it is to be a young man now women are doing better in education women do better in employment um and they're right. I think it is easier to be one because we invented feminism. We've invented this network that allows that whatever problem you have, you can go out there and talk about it and women will help you. Mm. Men have not invented this network. They don't talk about their problems. So when they were asked this, it was the first time they talked about it. So they'll talk about things like um, 
Some of them were just silly, seemed silly, but you're like, oh no, that's interesting. They're like, I can't dress sexy for my girlfriend or wife. Like my wife can like put on something really beautiful and I know she's in the mood and it makes me fancy her. But if I want to look attractive for my wife, what can I do? Mm. All there is is like those comedy posing pouches from <laughs> Anne Summers that say like, beware the beast or it's mm. like of an elephant. <laughs> and at first I was like, lol, 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 that's quite funny. Yeah. But then it was like, if you flip reversed it and like the only, if Anne Summers was selling things for women that just made your genitals seem amusing or like a beast, <laughs> we'd be horrified, right? Like kind of like, that's just, I mean, to be honest, I would quite like it <laughs> if my pants said beast on it. But, but still, it's about yeah. like the variety of stuff so men can't make themselves attractive like mm. kind of they would talk about the clothes just going it's so boring to be a man all you everything you wear is like grey or beige or black like kind yeah. of women I know that it can often be a burden for a woman to open up her wardrobe and go who have I got to be today yeah. but we can choose from a variety we can be a different person every day of the week like yeah. today we're business like today we're like a lovely mum today it's a picnic today we're a beautiful dairy maid today we're glamorous <laughs> men just open the wardrobe every day and it's like I'm Simon I will put on some trousers yeah. which I think is why they're so into fancy dress parties like it's the only chance they get to express themselves yeah. and experiment with being someone else yeah. there's a stasis to being a man whereas a woman gets to be a million different things yeah. and that's grating for a man then it got really sad it was the men were saying things like if i'm out in a playground and i see a child fall over and hurt itself i can't go and help it because men are threatening i will have to look around and find a woman another man going there was a 13 year old girl got locked out of her house and she was walking up and down my street crying i couldn't go and help her i had to get my girlfriend because men are threatening and then you think about this if you're a boy like when you're a boy child you can go and help another child mm. as soon as you get to 13 14 your voice breaks you get a bit taller and yeah. then you throw color into it as well if you're black or brown you're suddenly a threat yeah to be seen as a weapon like kind of and humans want to help each other that is absolutely yeah. innate to being a human but boys can't do that they're seen as a threat and i suddenly realize well there is such a thing as female privilege because whatever the things i fear in life yeah. i know no one's ever been scared of me no i know that my my 16 year old thinks about that a lot he's yeah. very he's not the sort of uh, traditional football playing boy he's quite sensitive and empathetic and he not not into those like the sporty all the sort of traditional boy things is not really where he found himself and he really struggles a lot with the idea of the sort of toxic masculinity and being seen, being seen as a threat. He's had it where, you know, old women have said on the bus, you know, are you supposed to be out and hoodies and all this kind of thing? And he's found it really unnerving. It's it, And that's just a terrible thing to tell a human being. Like, mm. kind of like that's, you know, that, that crushes a part of your spirit. And so you're saying toxic masculinity. So many people misunderstand the phrases toxic masculinity mm. or the patriarchy. They think it means all men. They're like, kind of, you're saying all men are toxic to be a man is no, toxic. No, not at all. It's, no, it's the aspects of what you're supposed to be yeah. as a man that are crushing you yeah. as much as the ideas of what a woman is supposed to be are crushing us. Exactly. And what you need to do. And so all these things that men were listing, I sort of looked at them and it was like, these are all the things that you that are making your life difficult are ways that you're supposed to be a man mm. and the solution to all of these is to take female attributes to be able to talk about your emotions to be able to dress up to be able to help to be seen as gentle and non-caring women have taken all the things of men that we want that's how we've become more powerful in the last century we wear trousers we can talk about sex we have jobs we get education we mm. you know we're in space we can rule countries we have taken all the male attributes that we thought were powerful and desirable men have not taken any of the female attributes of being you know the, the main carer for children to be able to express yourself to yeah. be able to help people and the reason they've done that is because women are still seen as lesser we could take the male things because that made us more powerful men don't want to come and take the female yeah, things because like, we're the losers still. yeah and that's why when men say feminism has gone too far it's like well no it can't because every time women succeed more and are loved more and more powerful and successful and we raise the whole image of women 
the more easy it's going to be for you to take these female attributes that you so desperately desire and that are making you unhappy, yeah. the things that you say are ruining your life. So feminism can never go too far. Every time a woman succeeds, yeah. you're, you're raising the stock of women and allowing men to be able to go, yeah, I'd like to be like, you know, for men to be able to say, yeah, my big hero is Beyonce, my big hero is Michelle Obama, my hero is Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Every time you say that, yeah. you're saving men who can take those attributes and put them in their lives and not be crushed by this toxic masculinity. So, so I ended up writing, I thought, at the beginning of it, another book about feminism, but more than half of it's about men now, just kind of um, the way we raise boys, where we fail in that, where society fails in that, what would make men happier. Because if feminism is about equality between the sexes, you've got to do both mm. feminism is only doing half the job if it only addresses women yeah and you know women shouldn't have to do that only do it if you've got the time but that is something very urgent now yeah and i think we need to be able to show men how to do that because i don't think they know how to do it well i think this is something that hopefully more more and more people will realize about every anything that's always coming up in as a sort of social conversation whether it be about homophobia or racism or important feminism it's it's the conversation has to have two places. It's not enough to go, well, that's brilliant, those feminists over there doing doing their thing. Brilliant. Totally. It's, all of us make the change or, or it doesn't really work. And you can't hide it. And that's why sort of like there's a sort of, the, there are the more, um, uh, the sort of angry and more niche feminists who are like, you know, a man can't say he's a feminist or like kind of, you yeah. need to know that you have to do all these things to be a feminist. You can't hide the feminism in a tiny place that like no. you can't hide it in a place that only the cool people can get to it or the people who know all the rules this is a this is an idea that is for everyone and is about everyone mm. so you can't put all these strictures and rules to it and hide it and go well, you can only talk about feminism if you know these things or you are this person mm. it has to be for everyone it only works if we all do it like kind of, there's no point in 10% of the people being brilliant perfect strident feminists and them telling no one else is a proper feminist yeah it, feminism only works if everybody believes in it exactly there's no point in you being a strident feminist but 90% of the world thinking that feminism is rubbish and that women can't do stuff yeah you have to spread it that's yeah. it you've got to spread this brilliant joyful idea the good news is yeah that women are amazing and yeah. we can help men yes um tell as many people as you can that's the rumor this week feminism is <laughs> amazing tell as many people <laughs> as you can well i suppose that is something that's changed a lot since we were teenagers that now um it's definitely not seen in the same way feminism is it well, it's I remember, massively. were you around for Riot Girl? Were you a little bit too young for that? The sort of punky yeah, Riot no, Girl thing? So sort of Courtney Love and Hole and stuff. Because at the time, that was the big sort of feminist movement and it was all, it was Kathleen, That was basically Hannah, just as I started going, going out probably around. So you would have seen the fashion effects of it. So it would be girls in like 90s and Dot Martins. I did one of my first gigs in a, in a slip. Yeah, right. that was a real look at the time, wasn't it? Now get... I'm like, I actually still own it, and I'm like, I can't believe I went out in that. Like, but you whoa. could get dressed for a night out for 50p. Dan yeah, Dan charity shop, shop. Yeah, petticoat, done. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Um, <laughs> and easy to wash, and you can crinkle it up and fit it in a handbag. But that was, that feminism then, everyone was going, well, if you're a feminist, you should be into Riot Girl. But they only wrote about it in fanzines that you could only get from cool record shops in mm. Seattle. And it was like, well, this is a brilliant movement, and there's some great music coming out of it, but you can't hide the feminism in a fanzine. Like, no. kind of, you've got to put it in the press. Like, the girls who really need this are on horrible council estates in Wolverhampton. Mm. They're not going to go and buy your fanzine in Seattle. No, no, no. Like, you know, spread the news, man. Mm. Let everybody in. Um, so, yeah, that's that's why populist feminism, I think, is the only feminism that works, really. you just got to spread that news. Yeah, it's funny, because when I was doing this, the idea of the podcast, I was thinking, you know, I'll, I want to speak to... To working women who are also raising a family about the balance and then people have said to me sometimes oh wouldn't it be interesting to talk to you're going to do some dads as well and I was like no I, th I think it does have to be women because yeah. because if you speak to um a same-sex couple of if it's two men the chances are that the conversation that might be asked of them is about who's the who's the mum role yeah, and the yeah. dad role they'll, they'll be 
there'll be an option as if they've had to you know be able to make choices and yes. obviously that doesn't mean they're not being judged there's definitely a conversation to be had but when it comes to to this and talking about working mothers it's quite specific i think totally and it's so inculcated like there's another chapter that i've written in the book it's like why when my teenage brother came to live with me and i thought before he moved in that he would be helping around the house because that's what i'd done as a teenager like mm. we had two kids he'd be helping me with the housework and he didn't he just played his xbox and he's really good at maths and that's what he was doing and mm. i was like why is he not helping and then i was like okay now i get it like when it was a boyfriend or a husband i didn't get it because i wasn't there for their childhood i was there for his childhood i had women's magazines next mm. to my bed and women's magazines are full of tips about everything how to run a household how to raise a child how to campaign against fgm how to give a blow job how to get stains out of a curtain literally everything <laughs> and the women's magazines are in a section that's called women's lifestyle mm. you are taught in these magazines that cover everything how to have a life with style mm. high standards how to buy the best sofa how to buy the best coat hangers men their section in the, in the magazine shops is men's interests and all their magazines will be about one thing it's about music or fishing or gaming or yeah. maths or anything and then so men are encouraged from day one there's no general interest magazine for a teenage boy where you learn about how to run a house and have yeah. sex and talk to people and campaign you just get your gaming magazine or your fishing magazine and you just learn one thing yeah and so like when my teenage brother came to live with me i was like well he can't I can't understand his maths when he's talking about it. I don't see it. I don't understand that system. That's what he's learned. He doesn't see the system of this house. Mm. It's, it's equally a different system. He doesn't see how a kitchen gets tidy, how a child is taught to say please and thank you, kind of, you know, how we would buy new blinds, like kind of why the lighting in this front room is really nice because mm. we don't turn on the big overhead light. Mm -hmm. We just use the nice side lamps. Women have been taught to see that and notice that and run a household from day one mm. to be good at everything. Yeah. Men are taught to specialise from day one in one thing and that's how they succeed. So they literally don't see it. Yeah. And then when people move, when a heterosexual man and woman move in together, women are like, now we'll make a fabulous house. Yeah. Whereas the man would be like, I will get a good chair that I can game in and mm. I will have an amazing stereo and a brilliant record collection and I'll learn how to cook a curry. Mm. And it's just a different thing. And that's where the clash comes, like kind of like two people who've been raised in completely different systems yeah with completely different ways of saying the world and they can't see the value in what you're doing at all because no. they've never been taught it yeah and that's what the clash is and the only solution is to have a massive whiteboard in the kitchen where when you're walking around the house seeing all these things you just write down what needs doing on a whiteboard and you yeah. go split them in half so i don't have to think about it because otherwise you are just walking around all the time with a massive to-do list in your head yeah yeah now for instance in your house do you have the stairs system yes of course things at the bottom of the stairs need to be taken to the top. top yeah does anyone else in your house get that system no i think you tweeted about this actually and i was like no that doesn't happen at all and people just walk straight past it but i never go up or downstairs without something well, in my hands literally this there's always something that needs to go somewhere literally this yeah but i will watch children and men step over this yeah. pile of stuff or richard puts things in the middle of the stairs as well which is really annoying that's just dangerous that's a trip hazard yes health and safety mm. needs to be in there no i like the stair system it works right i grew up with a stair but system but it works for us that. We know that, but no one else sees it. It's, no, inv it's, it's invisible. It's like ultraviolet light. So much of what gets done in the house, we've got UV goggles on, mm. and we see what needs doing. Yeah, like, yeah. Kind of like, like there was a handle broken off the door in the dining room, and like, kind of, I was like, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to do anything about it. Just sitting there, getting yeah. angry and angry. Okay, it's six months now. It's no one noticed. Oh. <laughs> You had to put a knife in the hole and turn it to open the door because the handle had fallen off. And, and people I was just like, went on with that for people eight just, months. I was like, but this is a thing that could be solved, and I refused mm. to do it. Yeah. In the end, obviously, we had a huge row, and he went off and mended it. But like, 
that's the UV goggles. Yeah, yeah. I'm raised to go round, go in. You know, all like when you've got kids, you're thinking in the future. You're walking down the street with a kid, and you know there's a dog that barks at number nineteen, and your mm. kid is scared of it. So you cross the road here, yeah. and you know that in half an hour they'll be hungry. So you've got a snack with yeah, you, yeah. and you've got a spare set of all clothes. Of that stuff. You're living in the future. You're constantly scanning. Like, yeah. The whole stitching time saves nine thing is a mm. woman's thing. You go, that's a problem now. Mm-hmm. And if I solve it now, it will be five times less expensive exactly. than if I solve it in six months' time. Mm-hmm. You're not taught to scan a life like that as a boy. And no, that's no. the big difference. That's so that's so why you mustn't be capable in the house, basically, Sophie, is what I'm saying. <laughs> because you're scanning. While you're scanning all that, they're not going to see it. Mm. You need to put the goggles on them. Well, that's what I like as well about when I have these conversations. I turn my phone off and I'm just gone and... Like last week when I sort of came back to doing uh, doing my chats and uh, when I turned my phone back on, someone had asked a question about wh- which kid needs to go to school and I was like, you just had to figure it out because I was here and my phone was off and totally. that's nice. Every woman I know has this <laughs> fantasy that they will... This was pre-COVID, to be fair, when hospitals became scary and dangerous, but before COVID-19 happened, every middle-aged woman I know has had the fantasy of having to go to hospital for a week. Yeah. Not for anything serious, no, maybe no. just like a really clean break on a leg. Yeah. where you just had to be in hospital for a week they wouldn't let you use phones because it inter- interfered with the scanners they bring you food on a tray and you just lie there for a week and yeah. do nothing like every middle-aged woman i know like more than going on a spa weekend just a week in hospital with a broken leg that'd be amazing well i recently fe- fell off my bike and i hit my head and um <sighs> i had like three or four days of um being at home so i'm in pajamas and taking it easy and uh I watched uh, A Place in the Sun and it was honestly one of my like favourite afternoons of the whole of the oh, last mate. three months. I just watched people walking around little apartments in Portugal and thinking about whether they'd buy it and they were all pretty ugly apartments and I just loved it so much. I'm oh, so happy. I'm escaped to the country. I'm like, <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm, sort of I'm very specialist now. Only Wales, Herefordshire and Gloucestershire. I'm not interested <laughs> anywhere else. Well, that's where your future lives. You exactly. Know? You've got to start getting your eye in. Scanning, right? <laughs> and it's great when it's an episode from like 10 years ago and they're being a bit fussy. It's like a house for 200 30,000 pounds they're going it's not very big and I'm like I'm from the future you will get fuck all for 230,000 pounds in the yeah, future yeah. buy it now that's an investment yeah, yeah. don't be so fussy Jan <laughs> buy that house um, it, what do you think you, you would think of you as a mum like pre-baby you what would you think would you be what I thought I'd be like mm. yeah no I, I think I would be very impressed with, I mean I just presumed that I would keep working that my kids would be the main thing I wanted was for my kids to be funny. I think that uh, just takes you a long way, like kind definitely. of definitely because funny is hugely underrated in many ways. Because funny means that you've got cleverness left over to play. I think being funny is brilliant, and I, I'm always unnerved by serious children. I have to say, it's so weird, isn't it? I mean, God mm. bless them, and I respect them, and they'll probably go on and rule. I words, know, but, but I'm sort of glad they're doing that with their kids, so that my kids can be daft. Totally. <laughs> gets you so far and yeah. also like when you're talking about serious things if you can be funny you're far more likely to make your point if Definitely. you can make it like it's one thing i keep telling sort of young people on the internet like when they're really passionate about a subject or like an injustice and they're angry about it and i'm like if you tweet and communicate in anger people just hear the emotions yes. and they're going to come back at you with anger no one's going to listen to what yeah. you're saying and you are quite right to be really fucked off about racism or homophobia or sexism but all that's going to happen is people are going to hear your anger yeah. and they're going to come back at you with anger and you're going to get burnt and unhappy. Yeah. If you can make your point with some kind of humour, yeah. first of all, people will respond with humour and you have a great conversation and you make friends. And secondly, people retweet it if you're funny. Yeah. Like, it will spread further. You will spread your information. Hidden, hidden within your joke is the information you wish to spread. Mm. That's how you spread it. Observe in nature how, how trees reproduce. They make delicious fruits with the seeds hidden inside and then the bird takes the delicious fruit and shits out the seed somewhere else. That's what humour is. It's the mm. juicy apple around the seed of your truth that the birds of the internet will shit <laughs> across the country if you hide it in delicious fruits <laughs> yeah i mean sometimes i've realized it's funny because you do 
every family has their sort of own atmosphere and things that have been brought out and the things that get celebrated in our house being funny or doing silly dances or songs is always the thing that gets attention yes so it's a real uh, performer's house yeah, yeah and so uh, sometimes you know you you're very keen to have kids aren't you where they're like oh it's so great how you're confident and bold and yeah you do question things and every once in a while you're like oh my god they've all got bloody opinions <gasps> and they're all like jazz hands about stuff and calm down get done off that table and also the worst bit about raising funny kids is the agonizing six months to a year where kids are learning to be funny and they know the rhythm of a joke yes. but they don't understand how jokes work mm. so they would be like knock knock who's there pasta pasta who pasta flushed down the toilet yeah. <laughs> you're like okay it's the rhythm of a joke you've understood yeah. the format of the joke but you've not understood the got a purpose joke of the joke it. yes and like but you have to laugh yeah uh, and that that was that for me that was the hardest of all the illnesses and everything that's ever happened the six months where they're learning to be funny was the hardest bit of parenthood <laughs> fake laughter Just, i'm not very good at fake laughter i'd be like <laughs> they'd be like you didn't find that funny did you mum no i definitely did <laughs> you didn't did you mum no no i didn't learn to be funny <laughs> i'm trying to think I think the hardest bit I've found, well, certainly recently, is that when they get very um, sort of fixated on talking about something, and so a lot of my work over the time, with projects I would call it rather than work during lockdown, I'm trying to get things done, we'd have one of them sort of circling constantly with a sort of dialogue, and then do you know they're going to do this, and then this character did that, and do you know this, one? and it would just seem to be going on and on and on, and I'd be thinking, I don't know what we're talking about, and at the end I'd sort of be like, so was this all something you dreamt? They go, no, I said it was a film or something. And I'm like, oh, God, stop. Just stop talking to me about... Then, I, then, you don't want to crush them, but no. please, I'm not interested. But there does come a point you are like, I will have to crush you a bit now. You do feel like a mother lion just putting its paw on a Trust tiny me, head. this is crushing. fascinating, but can you just yeah. go out the door and shut it on your way out, please? Try zooming grandma. Yeah. She has time. Yeah. She, she will be fascinated by this. Like when I was watching the YouTube thing I was telling you about where you were interviewing yourself yeah. at the same time my four year old sat next to me going mummy try and guess what chocolate I bought today that we haven't had for a really long time it's round you have to try and guess it and he wouldn't <laughs> start going on it wasn't a roller it wasn't buttons it wasn't it turned out to be a Tunnock's tea cake and at the end of the bed my eight year old was dressing in a mermaid's tail and white gloves <laughs> and asking me about the lines and the gloves and if that still meant he could be a magician and I was trying to watch this this talk you were giving and I was like this is completely oh, untenable it's, I, I just, think the room of one's own idea is a really good idea I fantasise about that it doesn't keep, have to be a whole hospital bed i just settle for a little corner somewhere i think honest. if you ever have to explain motherhood to someone i was like what i've wanted to do in this 16 and 19 now is just in one day open up a note on my iphone and write down everything they asked me mm. everything i had to do for them uh and everything they said at me every, mm. every time i had to respond to them in some way every time i was interrupted yeah. just do it as one list for one day just oh. so i could finally work out where my day had gone and the thing is that you're so busy dealing with that shit yeah, you, you don't, don't have, have time, time to write that list, list yeah. and that if you want to know how busy you are as a parent that is it that you don't have time to write down why you're so busy no and you get to the end of every day and you're just like why have i not done half the things i was going to do yeah, yeah, and often yeah. you can't remember it's like no. just like it, uh, all i remember is just just being this miasma of bullshit from about half past six that's to probably why you got sent to your gardening because then it's like a proper it had a it had a shape to the task and then it happened and things get completed and the brilliant mm. thing about a garden is like you because one of the great things about getting older is you have a real understanding of time like mm. you can stand there in march and go if i plant that now in september that corner's going to look amazing and that's incredibly satisfying whereas yeah. it's so much longer with kids you plant an idea here about them being a good person and then you have to wait till 2025 for it to yeah. seed whereas in a garden within the space of a year everything that you want is satisfied and it's um and also they hate gardening so it's the one place I can if they come out and they bother me I'm like I will talk to you about this but can you help me double dig this border and they disappear again it's like oh right <laughs> you can sort it out on your own <laughs> yeah, they can see. they can 
Oh, well, it's been so nice talking to you. Do you do you remember that chat when you were interviewing yourself? I know I keep banging on about it, but it did make me laugh out loud. <laughs> I can't remember anything. I can remember the horror the ten minutes before I went on stage because I was already thinking he's going to have to spoon feed me through this one because yeah. I am so ill. No, you managed to talk for like for, I think it's an hour. <laughs> um, but uh, when you asked yourself if you were good in bed, um, you said I'm really good in bed. I'm a really good lay, um, except for one time where you'd said you said give, <gasps> give it some, some welly. <laughs> You said we had to stop and just look down at where the good sex had been and just it, just leave it there. Oh, it was so... <laughs> I've written about this in the book as well. I've written, like... You realise when you've been in a relationship for a long time that when you say, I love you, it means loads of different things. Mm. Like, you can say... If I say, I love you when I'm hungover, it means, I hope I wasn't a disgrace last night. Do you still love me? <laughs> and when you ring someone from a hotel and go, I love you, you want them to say... What you mean is, I want you to say, you're working so hard and we miss you. Like, mm. I love you very rarely means I love you. Mm. And the most difficult I love you to decode is when you're having sex. Because <laughs> I will equally say I love you when I want you to come straight away. I'm done. This is it. We're, we're finished. <laughs> or... This is amazing, carry on forever. <laughs> it's so difficult and dangerous to say I love you during sex. It could mean one of any one of a million things. It's just best not to say it. So then I substituted give it some welly. And give it both. some welly's good. <laughs> I can tell anybody who's listening that if they're thinking of saying that during sex, it's not yeah. It's not useful. It's, not, it's about as sexy as the little... It will end. Pants, pants that look like an elephant. Yeah, ever. the beast inside. But if you want the sex to stop, if you're having chafing issues, like I know, and you want the sex to stop, just say give it some welly, it will end. Give it some welly. <laughs> My podcast is called Spinning Plates. Is it on every platform? It is on every platform, is Kit. It on YouTube? Oh, actually, I don't know if it is on YouTube. Uh, you can find it on things like Spotify, Acast, uh, Apple things. Are you thinking of having a listen, Kit? Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, that is Kit, my 10-year-old. Uh, uh, oh, no, you're not 10, are you, Kit? You're 11. <laughs> I'm just recording the outro. Yeah. Um, I realised in my intro to the interview with Catelyn, I forgot to say the noise in the background was Kit listening to some clips on YouTube just before bedtime. Uh, so, yeah, we're both sat in the bedroom, aren't we, Kit? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just Kit and I and the cat Rizzo. She's quite old now. Uh, I'll show you in a minute, Kit. Kit seems to suddenly be very keen to get access to my podcast. Um, he's very interested in what working mothers think about life anyway thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed the chat with Kat. and i think um something she said actually really uh i think is very true where she said that through humor you can get people to listen to you and if there's ever an example of that it's Catelyn, isn't there i mean she's she's always someone where as a writer or as a reader she's really grabbed my attention and i've pressed her book how to be a woman into the hands of many uh, of my friends as a sort of birthday present or Christmas present. If you haven't read it, read it. And I can't wait to read More Than a Woman, which is out in September. And she's also got a movie coming out at the moment too. So lots and lots of things happening in Camp Moran. Oh, and her daughter um, has brought out her first ever um, single as well that she recorded during lockdown. And her other daughter did the video for it. Um... And I'll um, find a clever way to do a link to that because it's a really beautiful song. So, yeah, lots of exciting things, lots of creativity. What a clever artistic family. Anywho, uh, back to uh, saying thank you to you. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll see you again next week. And lots of love in the meantime. And as, uh, as Kit was asking, yeah, you can find my podcast everywhere. You found it. Clever you. <laughs> All the best. Bye. <laughs>
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.